my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm uh, very excited to be with Max Dashu today and we are going to go through uh, the uh, ninth chapter of Witches and Pagans, the book uh, she released, uh, I think it was a year and a half ago, 2016, yes. And so that's Witches and Pagans. And I'm going to read a little bit of Max's bio um, so that uh, you can remember, you can remember her. Max Dashu founded the Suppressed History Archives in 1970 to research and document women's history from an international perspective. She built a collection of 15,000 slides and 30,000 digital images and has created 150 slideshows on female cultural heritage across human history. Dashu's work bridges the gap between academia and grassroots education. She published... Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100, on Velida Press in 2016. This book is volume 7 of a 15-volume series, Secret History of the Witches, with two more volumes forthcoming. I want to say that we have been going through this book together, chapter by chapter, and uh, you can uh, you will soon be able to find all nine chapters on futureprimitive.org on the right side of the uh, homepage. So welcome back, Max. Happy to be with you. Thank you, Joanna. Uh, this chapter is called Voluspa. You might want to correct my pronunciation. Yeah, Voluspa. Okay, Voluspa. And um, if you want to add anything about your biography and your work before we start. Oh, no, to... that, 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 that suffices very well. Okay. Um, I will say that Voluspa, this is the name of the oldest poem in the Icelandic Edda, and it is one of the richest sources we have about the Norse cosmology, their divinities, the worldview, and the title means the prophecy of the vulva, and vulva means literally a staff woman, but it's really a word for the seeresses, for the, the oracular woman in Scandinavia. Uh, a lot of times you will see translated as seeress, sibyl, or witch. And so this is a reference to female prophecy, which is a fascinating topic because, you know, it's so marginalized in the way that the cultural record is presented to us. I mean, you have a few examples like the biblical Devorah who are named as prophetesses. And actually there's a lot of information about prophetic women I'm working on a poster right now about that, on that subject. But Scandinavia is one of the places in Europe where this is it's really unique in the way that it's documented because it's so late. You know, it, the, these texts are a thousand years old and some of them younger even than that. Uh, but it's the richest source that we have on female spiritual leadership in Europe from you know, um, a somewhat Christianized uh, source, the scribes that wrote it down. But it gives us a window into these ancestral heritages of Northern Europe. So the the word vulva does come from the Veluspa. Well, 
Hmm. I mean, not exactly. They're both words. The source of this, this group of words is vulva, which means a staff. And so vulva is woman with a staff. You know, the staff woman is yes, a yes. priestess, basically. And vulva is those two words, vulva and then spa, which means prophecy. So they're combined into one word, the yes, prophecy yes. of the vulva. And, and just, just to get really linguistically technical, in the plural, we refer to these theorists as vuller, which is, you know, that's just the, the linguistic plural for the word. Right. right. So perhaps speak about the, uh, the nine worlds and the nine giant, giantesses. Yeah, yeah. So, so the thing about this, this is really a unique document because it begins as if we're actually listening to a prophetic woman as she recounts the origins of the world. Yeah. And, and I have to do a little sidebar here because for a lot of people, prophecy means predicting the future. And in fact, she does this in the po- at the end of the poem. But first she goes back and she does an origin story about where the world came from and... and uh, you know, that includes the great world tree that sits at the side of the three wells, or at least on top of the three wells. It's a tree with waters underneath it. And these are related to the realms of Hell, the goddess of death, Mimir, a giant, so one of the nature divinities. And then the most exalted of those wells belongs to Urve. And she is the oldest of the fates of the Norns. And so um, the, the Norns come into this very early on in, in what the vulva is recounting. So the seeress talks about how there's nine worlds in this tree. And she says, nine worlds I remember, nine women in wood with mighty roots beneath the ground. And so this nineness is really important. You'll find it all the way across Eurasia and not just there, the ninefold goddess uh, turns up in a lot of parts of the world, like the, the goddess Oya, the Orisha Oya in the Yoruba culture in West Africa, for example. There's many, many examples of it. So it, it's kind of a cosmic number of completion. And so these nine women in wood are giantesses. And this, this takes us into a really important observation, not just about the Vuluspa, but Norse cosmology in general. Because the way that we read about it in high school, there are the Aesir, who are mostly male gods. There's a few goddesses, but they hardly do much of anything in most of the stories. But underlying that is this older layer of the giants, as they're referred to in English, the Jutner in, in Norse. And so these giantesses are primordial women who are powerful they are crones, they are witch-like, they are ancestral beings who live in the caves, in the rocks, in the wells. They, they are ancient earth powers. And to some extent, those, those giantesses are demonized in what we have, the remains of what survives in, in Norse lore, because they are taken as threatening. But there are bits and pieces that I discuss here in this chapter about... Um, a male god like Heimdallr, for example, who says, I am the offspring of nine mothers, mm-hmm. of nine sisters am I the son. And so because he's considered an ancestral figure for all humans, they are the grandmothers for all humans. But you have to kind of pick apart the story because it's not given to us in a straightforward manner. You have to kind of go under a bunch of layers to find the female aspect, which is buried to a large extent. And so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do in this chapter is to see where is the female power mm-hmm. and, you know, who are these giantesses and, you know, what, what is this older cosmology with this, this central female power uh, in view of the overlay of Odin and all the warrior gods and yeah. Thor and all of this. You know, uh, the, the women are really peripheral to that, with the exception of, of Freya, who is, is still an important figure. But traveling through these nine worlds is metaphoric for the shaman's journey. And this is something that's 
Scandinavia, across Eurasia and into Siberia, shares with a lot of indigenous cultures in Eurasia. Mm-hmm. The idea that um, of nine planes, of nine worlds, of being able to move through different realms of consciousness. And again, that nineness has has an implication of completeness. It's the entirety. But that whole, that oneness, has all these different aspects which are expressing themselves here as the nine. And so uh, the giantesses are nine, and the daughters of the sea are nine. And you see seers sitting on the chairs of destiny for nine days. You know, there's just these little fragments of this nineness coming through that is uh, interesting because it has a broader connection in other cosmologies. But then there's also the three. So the three maidens come in the Vulraspa, and after describing how an all-male body of gods, referred to as the Aesir, you know, are building temples and forging metal and playing game, maybe drafts or something, some kind of game. Then these three nine maidens come, and they're called, um, in one of the accounts, first maidens. So they are ogres, or they are giants, mm. and they're very powerful. Uh, they arrive, and the Aesir freak out at this, these new female arrivals. And a lot of the modern scholarship says, well, yeah, these, these are terrible women, they are... They are frightening, they are awful, and so that kind of repeats the, the, the bias of the texts themselves. But very interesting, because who could these three maidens be but the Norns? You know, we don't have any other threefold female figures in Norse cosmology. They're not named as Norns in the Vodhuspa. However, they are by the Icelandic skald Snorri, who is another of our main sources. This is what they call the prose Edda. So the Vulispa is part of the poetic Edda and is older. But Snorri in the prose Edda does commentaries, and he reveals more things about all of this and names things, for example, the name of the Norns, that we wouldn't otherwise know about. And so these Norns, according to some sources and even the text itself in places, are giantesses. They pre-exist the whole creation story that is laid out in the Vuvuspa. They're just there. They're already there. before, Not just before Odin, but before the ancestral male figures that are described there. And so, again, we have these somewhat invisible female presences who are never born or created. And they're the first female powers named in the Vuluspa. Anyhow, uh, there's a passage there. They laid down fate. They chose lives for the children of men, destinies of humans. So this really, these ageless women have their correspondence in Greek and Roman and Slavic and other Germanic cultures in uh, a wide swath, actually, of European tradition. So that's another really ancient substratum because it shows us that in the far, far past, all of these peoples who speak Indo-European languages have this three-fold fate goddess, this triune power, which predates the gods and is more powerful than the gods and can actually disposit the fate even of the gods. So that's very interesting. <laughs> interesting to know these things. And this is all being told to us by the seers. I have a little trivia question. There's um there's uh Gulvaig and I was wondering if uh Gulliver uh as a man was a was a, a um a patriarchal replacement for Gulvaig? Not that I know of. I mean, I don't really know what the etymology is for the name Gulliver. Um, It is a sound-alike. It's true. There's a lot of speculation about the meaning of Gulvaig itself. And just just to lay the context 
of this for the listeners, she is the primal vulva who is described in, in the next section right. of Vulva. So there's this woman who is described first as Gulvig and later as Hather. Well, mm-hmm. let, let me just read this one passage because okay. it's really, really important. Yes. She remembers the war first in the world, she being the vulva who's prophecy. When they riddled Gulveg with spears and burned her in the hall of Har, this is one of the names of Odin, three times burned, three times born, often again and again, but yet she lives. Hmm. So she's attacked in the hall of Odin by the Aesir, and they are burning her, and they are also... Um, stabbing her with spears. Yeah. Okay, and so what's the reason for this attack? It's not really ever explained, but the attack sparks off the first war in the world. And this is most interesting because really what they're saying is patriarchal violence is the, the cause of this war, and of, really of all war. Yeah. So, um, and, it's, and, it, and it's sparked by an attack on a woman, and this is something that even... Historically or anthropologically, we know of many instances of wars that were that began because one group of men carried off and raped a woman from another group, you know, and then and then terrible wars result. So that's what's being described here by the Norse. So that that's part one of the story of Gulveig. But then it goes on. Hather, they called her when to home she came, the wise theorist enchanter of wands. She cast spells in a trance. And here comes the editorializing. And was ever the joy of evil women. Mm. So she's bad, is what, what the, the, the scribe who has recorded this, this text, maybe around the year 1100 or so. Um, you know, this powerful woman is bad, and only bad women like her. And in fact, they love her. They, she brings them joy. So um, what they're saying is that Govig is tortured and burned, is reborn again and again, and so they don't manage to kill her. So in a way, she's a deity. Uh-huh. But then she becomes a, a vulva, like the first primordial vulva. And she's called a seeress, and she is working with the enchanter with wands as a reference again to the vulva because the, that name itself means staff woman. So she's using uh, gandra, which can mean both a spell and also a ceremonial staff, or even the the pole on which the witch rides. And it refers to her entering a shamanic ecstasy in order to do her prophecies. And it refers to her also traveling, it says, when to home she came. So it's referring to what we know from other Icelandic sources, the traveling vulva who goes from village to village and is received with hospitality and honor and is led to the high seat and feasted, and then she prophecies for the people in that community who can question her about the future. So that that sense of prophecy as prediction is present in this tradition. It's just not the totality, because there's more to it. And so... You know, there's, there's a lot of, I don't think we have to get into all the linguistics yes, of the yes. names, but there's been a lot of speculation about what the names mean, and I talk about how a lot of our sources follow uh, the idea that is in the text at times that female power is threatening and somehow bad, even though the name for her in uh, both, both Hader and, and Goldvig are positive names. They, they're shining, they're golden, they're precious. You know, so that there's this survival of the older heathen idea that these women are sacred beings, that they are bringers of divine wisdom and inspiration, or under divine inspiration that they bring wisdom. So there's a lot of sexual politics to the way that this first war in the world is described. And... I guess, I guess that's all I need to say about that, uh, unless you have something. 
No, no, I just, um, I just had this question and, uh, and thank you for uh, expanding on it. So uh, perhaps we will go to the giantess Agrboba? Agrboba? What? Angerboda? Yes. Angerboda. Yeah, okay, let me let me turn back here. Yeah, so, you know, there's um, there's two versions of the Vuluspot, and uh. both of them refer to, let me see here, I've got to find my notes here. No, one of them only refers to Angerboda, and that, that's the Hauksburg version. So it says, East lived the crone in ironwood and bore their... Fenrir's progeny, of them all, one especially shall be the moon's devourer in a troll's guise. And Angerbola means the bringer of sorrow, and she's the mother of the death goddess, Hel, who is the ruler of the underworld. So these are beings in the realm of darkness, the underworld realm, and deities of this type tend to get demonized, I mean, there is this element of fear for humans, for the unknown, for that which is on the other side, for the spirits of the dead and all of that. And so a lot of times the giantesses or other uh, female figures will fall, like Hel herself, the goddess Hel, uh, will fall into that demonizing. And you see that happen also in the Kalevala in Finland, where uh, Lohi of Pohjola, the Lady of the North, is also the governess of the realm of the dead. But, you know, in, a, in an indigenous original cosmology, this is all part of the whole, the cycles of life and death. It's all sacred. But um, we get a little bit more about Angerboda uh, from Snorri, and he says she belongs to the race of wolves. Right. And so she, he also calls her the troll woman. And, or the, the women that live among her. So there's this kind of all-female group of giantesses who are called wood women, and that's the same word we saw earlier on talking about the giantesses in relation to the tree of life. But, you know, there's a little bit of a demonizing flavor going on here with Angarboda. And, you know, that's not uncommon with the giantesses. I should mention that I, I really learned a lot from the uh, Norwegian scholar and author Maria Kvilhog, who has, does a lot of scholarship around all of this, you know, really mm-hmm. making accessible a lot of the, the original sources. And she can read the Icelandic and she can read uh, sources that I can't read in Norwegian. And, yeah. you know, so she really highlights, and other authors have done this too, the importance of the giantesses for recovering a female positive cosmology out of a Norse lore, which in many ways, like the Greek mm-hmm. or the Roman, is, is a male-dominated narrative, right. you know, right. where women are often not visible, you know, it's like Frigg is the wife, and I think there's like five total references to Frigg in what we have from the written sources, you know, and so she's, um, she's really marginalized in the written record, and yet we know from oral tradition in living cultures, like, you know, in the 19th century, people were still referring to the three stars in the belt of Orion as the spindle of Frigg, Frigarok. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's a way in which some of these really archaic elements are carried along either in proverbs or in, you know, naming of constellations in that case, but also sometimes through embroidery and weaving and other traditions where a continuity could be maintained because it was done in the women's sphere. And so they could kind of keep these symbols and names and sometimes stories going right under the nose of the priests, you know, who are trying to stamp all of this out. And so, and it's, and it's even an alternative expression of a female-centered tradition that is resistant also to the dominant Norse heathen narratives, the ones that, you know, are glorifying the warriors, uh, Odin and Thor, and, you know, uh, really kind of not paying a lot of attention to the 
tenure as a female Acer. So the, that's, that's part of what we're trying to do here is to peel back all of the layers that conceal what it is that the women were doing and saying and, you know, what their concepts were around all of this. Well, I'm glad you said that because I feel I would like to ask you to uh, position the Voluspa. Just tell us historically, we didn't do that in the beginning. Okay, uh, sure. Yes. The year yeah, right. and uh, the place who wrote yeah. it. Okay, so first what we're looking at, just as we did with the Bible and a lot of other sources, there's a long oral tradition that predates anything that ever got written down. In the case of the Norse, they had runes, but they didn't have written books in the way that the Greco-Roman-influenced uh, Christian world did in Europe. And so this writing arrives with the first missionaries, and you have a process of conversion that begins bef before the year 1000, and the dates vary, you know, for Norway, for Sweden, for Iceland, the countries where, um, you know, we're, we're looking at this uh, culture. Mm -hmm. And so then what was it, up till that time passed on orally only is congealed into a final form by scribes who write it down. And this is happening from 1100, 1200, 1300. You have uh, Norse Christian monks primarily or scalds who had converted but who still know the old traditions writing parts of it down. And so in the case of the Vuvuzpa, this is one of the earliest ones to be recorded. You know, it has a lot of archaic features in it that show its age. But there's nothing, this is a thing you discover when you look at the layered nature of history. There's nothing pure because there are always these interventions and editorial shifts. And I talk about this in the case of the Vuvuzpa when we talk about the dwarves' intrusion, because just when you get to the part where the, the three maidens arrive, then there's a break in the text, and all of a sudden there's this litany of the names of, I forget how many, dwarves. Right. You know, and so something was stuck in there, maybe to patch a hole that a whole chunk looks to me have, to have been removed uh -huh. from the voodoo spot because it was too heathen and maybe too female as well. You know, it's right there when the Norns come that this, this intrusion is inserted into the text. So something happened there. We can, it's, it's like somebody, um, you know, uh, tried to break off a piece of a sculpture and patch something else on, but it's in a different style and you can tell it doesn't belong there. That's not the original arm that used to be in that statue. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways that Vuvuzpa bears the marks of Christian editorializing. And so, for example, in, in the end of one of the versions, there is a prediction of when the Christian Lord will come and glory, and, you know, I don't forget exactly how it goes, but there, there are definite uh, interventions of new material that is not uh, original, that is, is an overlay that happens. And so... That's important because we're not getting a pure form. We're getting what became crystallized as the final form, as it was set down by people, men, who were of the culture and even who loved that culture, as the Irish monks also did, but they were very conflicted about it. They were very threatened by the danger of, you know, something that could be seen as, well, you know, was pagan, was heathen. And so their, you know, status was completely tied to being Christian. And so they, they had to uphold the new order. And so they would, they would change things, and they would insert commentary in order, you know, at one point they say, oh, this is not in the Vuruspa, but in one of the sagas. You know, in, in former days, men used to say that people are born again, but all that is nothing but old wives' tales. You know, so they, they're, they're under a lot of pressure to forswear the tradition, even as they're reporting it. So that's how the Vuluspa comes to us. And as you can see, there are two versions. So you can see uh, variations. There would have been a lot of other versions, you know, because in an orature culture where it, everything is passed down orally, 
iterations. You can see this, for example, with the Yorba in the, uh, the orature of Ifa, the divination sacred tradition. And so each reciter of Ifa will articulate it in a different form. You know, and so the, the Vuvuzpa has some of that aspect to it. Um, I hope that helps somewhat. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, there's something else I wanted. I can't really think what else I wanted to say. There was another point, but maybe it'll come to me. So, uh, really, your work, much of your work, is peeling back the manipulation of the narrative that blames women and scapegoats us through his story. Yeah, and also deletes us or, you know, demonizes or minimizes, you know, taking out pieces and adding others. And, you know, it is, uh, the narrative was recorded by elite men. And that doesn't tell us much at all about what the old grandmothers in the cottages were saying and doing you know, and what kind of chance they might have used, or even the seership that some of them would have um, been doing. So this, the Vulva Spa is like a window into a world, and we kind of have to do, you know, in academia they call this text criticism, because you can, you can actually sometimes date certain kinds of linguistic phrases, or you can say, well, you know, there are obviously changes in this text because they're referring, like say in the Irish tradition, they're referring to chariots, you know, and, and that puts a certain date on things, you know, for what time period uh-huh. it was composed in or things yes. like that. Yes. And so, you know, you're just kind of weighing everything and um, doing a lot of comparison with other texts and trying to see, you know, it's basically trying to reweave the ripped web of culture because all of this Here's the other thing I want to say about the Vuluspa. Yes. It's a very fragmentary text. I mean, it jumps from place to place, and maybe sometimes that's because there are gaps of, of chunks that were simply deleted, like in the case of the dwarves' intrusion mm-hmm. being covering over a hole yeah. that was torn in it. And in other cases, the poet, and this is really important about how oral tradition of this magnitude uh, works, the poet is alluding only somewhat to an entire body of stories. And so the poet is assuming that people already know these other stories. So, for example, when he talks about the attempt to seize Freya in this battle between the giants and uh, the Aesir, mm-hmm. uh, he says the, 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 the story and the Vuluspa gives very, very little about what that is. We're just we're seeing a reference to whole whole narratives that are simply missing, and so we're sitting there trying to reconstruct stories that we don't know, you know. And that's a really strong piece about what the Vuluspa is about. So here's another angle because um, Freya and the Vanir and the war between the Aesir and the Vanir mm-hmm. is is one of the core themes in the Vuluspa. So who are the Vanir? It, this is never explained in the poem itself. And there are these very evocative pairings of the Aesir and the Vanir, or the Aesir and the Alfar, the elves. And there's a lot of ceremonial formulas, I guess you could call them. You know, where how fair the Aesir, how fair the Alfar. You know, this, this pairing of the gods and the elves is something that recurs a lot. And it actually, it even we have a, an equivalent of that pairing in Old English, where it's called Essa and Ulfa, uh-huh. and that comes from a spell. So, you know, there's another angle where not only in looking for the goddesses, but also for these references to what sometimes are appearing as peoples, you know, maybe the Indo-Europeans and the non-Indo-Europeans, according to one way of looking at it. And, and who are these elves? You know, so uh, there's, there's one, one text in, uh, I forget which one this is called, the giantess Gerther is talking to a messenger, and he asks uh, who he is, and he says, I am not of the Alfar, nor of the Asir, mm-hmm. nor of the wise Vana. Mm-hmm. 
so these three groups are referred to. And uh, there's, there's quite a few references to that in various sources. These, these are pointers that, again, are huge missing chunks yes. that we don't know about very much in uh, current times because so little of this was recorded. It was demonized as heathen, and it was considered very risky to talk about it or much less to advocate it. And so it, it, we just have pieces of all of that. And I go through here also making comparisons with other Indo-European traditions, including the, uh, the Vedic stories. Yes. And because they also have this pairing, but for them, instead of Aesir and Vanir or Aesir and Alfar, they are talking about the Asuras, or really started the, the correct order, Devas and Asuras. And so in India... The devas are the gods, and the asuras are also gods, but they are demonic and considered to be more material, maybe more earthen. You know, so Lakshmi, for example, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. who is the goddess of good fortune and abundance and the richness of nature, is one of the asuras. And so there's this ambivalence about these 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 opposed pairs, and in India. The devas are the gods and the asuras are the demons. But in Iran, it's the other way around. Ahura, Ahura Mazda, you might be familiar with, uh-huh. is the divine god, and the devas are the demons. And, and that's something very interesting about how culture goes on all these twists and turns, you know, and how something that was once held sacred can flip over and be changed into its opposite. You know, and, and this, this whole dynamic of demonizing has a lot of relevance not only for women looking at the way that female power is disparaged, basically, and, and undervalued, but also the way that that can happen in terms of ethnicity and racialized categories. And so, you know, the, the, the people who are regarded as demonic, and this is really important for us to look at also, because you know a lot of a lot of traditions in the Indo-European cultural world, uh, the dark peoples are demonized, and you see evidence of that in the uh, in some of the Norse texts, but also in India, and you'll find it even beyond the Indo-European world. So the the idea that somehow certain groups are more divine and are superior, and other groups are demonic and Inferior. I mean, we're still dealing with the legacies of this way of thinking about the world, this really dualistic and uh, oppositional, oppositional way of looking at the world, which is ultimately based on domination. We're better than them, therefore we get to rule. Whether it's men ruling women, or whether it's lords ruling peasants, or whether it's Europeans ruling over conquered people in the rest of the world. Divide to conquer. Yeah, and, and that's really the principle of domination. I mean, Caesar is where that, uh, that phrase originates with the Roman conquest of Gaul. Um, and divide and conquer is really a fundamental principle of patriarchy. We can take it much before the Romans ever existed. You know, that you cannot really establish effective rulership over a group of people if you do not divide them. And so that division for women is still very much in place, you know, and there's there, until we can get some kind of solidarity, you know, in opposition to domination, then good luck, (laughs) you know, because uh, that, that has been the principle also that was used in the conquest of North America or any, any countries that if they could split off the native nations and exploit maybe enmities that pre-existed the European invasions, then they could seed in their project of empire and, and conquering and seizing land. So, you know, this, this is pretty much a repeat of what Caesar did, but I think we have to apply the principle also to the ways that women are divided. Absolutely, and the uh, divide to conquer was uh, the main value 
that was hammered into me as a child. And uh, when I took LSD, I realized I was not a peaceful and loving way to live. And uh, I've been deprogramming from that ever since. I mean, that's an ongoing thing because a lot of these these cultural spells are cultural spells. laid in to us so early from the beginning of our lives. Yes. And, and we, we are magnetized to those scripts. And it takes a lot of conscious opposition, not just intellectually, which is certainly a starting point, being able to name something and analyze it, but there's the deeper work of going in on the emotional level and transforming yourself so that you're not shaped any longer by those assumptions and those mandates. Well, digressing. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Another subject. Uh, Jose just pointed out that uh, he'd like to hear about the mead of poetry Mm -hmm. and Vedic Amrita. Soma, which is repeatedly described, which repeatedly described is described as an essence pressed out from some herbal preparation. Mm-hmm. So I'm just yeah, yeah. So there, there's again strong parallels between the Norse and the Vedic stories, and one of these has to do with a nectar. Uh, of wisdom, you know, uh, something that, when consumed, transforms the consciousness. And so you've got this, in the Norse version, the Iser take the wise teacher, Kvasar, and um, actually the dwarves are the ones that do this, mix his blood with honey and create the mead of poetry. And so... There is a very similar story in some ways that Ursula Dronke uh, laid out. She talks about the, the Vedic story of the churning of the milk ocean. And here again, we've got two opposing groups of, of deities who first conclude a truce between each other and then cooperate to create a divine elixir. And so then there's a war over the amrita, over the the nectar of immortality that is uh, created from this. And and so one in the in the uh, Norse story, the elixir comes from blood and honey, and in the Indian story, it comes from milk, from churning the milk ocean. Uh-huh. And in both of those stories, the eagle bears away this nectar, and it's. It, ultimately acquired via seducing a woman. And so um, the oppositional of the, the Iser and, and Vanir or the Devas and the Asuras is also uh, part of this story. Anyway, uh, you know, this, this notion of a transformative nectar is fascinating, and, you know, they're still arguing. I don't know if anybody will ever resolve, you know, what, what the Soma actually was. Yes. You know, some people think it was the magic mushrooms, and other people say, no, it was probably ephedra, or yeah. various plants have been named. Yeah. And, and maybe there really was a substance that was historically used in that deep proto-Indo-European past, and maybe it is purely a symbolic metaphor for the acquisition of deep spiritual knowledge. I mean, it, it just, you know, a lot of this becomes very, very speculative. It's a big but, question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just really amazing, though, to think about the conservational aspects of culture when you think about how far separated in time and space the Norse or the Irish or the Lithuanians, all of which have similarities to the Indian traditions, you know, how much they resemble it. Over thousands of years of separation, and yet there are passages in some of the Irish texts that very closely parallel uh, those in the Vedas. And the same goes for the Scandinavian and various phrases that are known from Lithuanian. And so, you know, this is interesting because 
in the absence of a written tradition in all three of those cultures until quite late in, in the overall scope of time, they were able to retain themes from the time when they all split off long, long ago. You know, the Proto-Indo-Europeans who may have originated in southern Eurasia, according to Gimbutas' theories, which mm-hmm. have been vindicated to a large degree through genetic research, yeah. as well as linguistic, uh, those people maybe 6,000 years ago were one people who split off and proceeded in various directions. And so you've got the Vedic Indians, and we've got the Persians, and the Tocharians, and the Armenians, and Greeks, and Persians, and Slavs, and Celts, and Germanic people. And so they're all, they're all from the same language group in the deep mists of time. And it's just fascinating to see how much they retain of those origins. There's a lot of similarities. And, and that's where the, the mythic histories are interesting to compare because you do see survivals like the story of the, the nectar of wisdom. Or even, you know, you could compare a figure like Freya with Lakshmi. Yes, yes. And, and so then, the, uh, coming back to the Vurvaspa, yes. the, the framework of the story is that she does these cosmologies. She talks about the origin of the world and these historic events of the first Vulva and the first war in the world. And then finally, after halfway through, more than halfway through, they come back to the theorist herself who is speaking. And now we see that she's addressing Odin, and she begins, uh, as shamans often do, is enumerating their powers, and she begins to say the, the mysteries that she knows, and, you know, the things that she knows where the hidden horn of Heimdallr is, and she also knows that Odin, this is, this is oblique, but we, we, we know from other sources that what she's referring to here, uh, she, she makes an oblique reference to Odin, having plucked out one of his eyes and cast it into the well of the giant Mimir in a bargain that for this sacrifice he would receive the gift of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so she actually satirically comes back to this because he's coming to her for knowledge and he has a handful of, of jewels and gold of golden rings that he's offering as inducements to her so that she will prophesy to him. And this is mirroring the actual relationship of the Norse lords to the seeresses, is that they would give them rich gifts in return for their prophecy. So this is all occurring in a mythic framework in the Vodospa, but we know that this actually happened in, you know, the housesteads of the Viking lords in various places uh, from the other sagas. But the, she has this kind of a snide taunt that she does for Odin because basically she says, What seekest to know? Why summon me? Well know I, Ig, which is the name of Odin, where thy eye is hidden in the wondrous well of Mimir. And, you know, this, this pledge of yours is now in the well of the giant. Know ye further or how? And so she's saying, well, you know, in this in this indirect way, well, you're coming to me for knowledge, but didn't you give up an eye to the giant Mimir in return for this divine knowledge you're now applying to me to receive? So what's up with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, because he is also in other other places bragged of knowing things that which women did not, and so why why does he have to come to her for the knowledge? And then she answers her own question: The fates I fathom, yet farther I see, see far and wide the world's about. So now she's preparing for her prophetic. Uh, description of what is to come. And so she's going into the future, and basically this is, uh, 
you know, the Nazis took up this, this theme of Ragnarok, but it is the doom of the powers, or the fate of the gods, is really what it means. And it comes from the Voodoo Ooh, and oh, it I is really actually telling that. the end of the world of the Acer. Oh, and wow. so it, it's a very pessimistic prophecy, you know, of the powers of destruction that will run freely across the world. And she's talking about atrocities of war that will be unleashed on humanity. And, you know, of course, Odin is a god of war. He loves war. He loves bloodshed. He loves to provoke conflict. But in this prophecy, she's saying he will become victim and fall to another more powerful attacker. And and so the the whole rationale of might makes right, which is implicit in mm-hmm. most of the stories about these kingly gods, mm-hmm. because the warnings against the rule of violence have gone unheeded, then there are going to be consequences for this. And so she talks about kin turning against kin, that would be an axe age, sword age, wind age, wolf age. The spear of no man will spare the other. And the sun dims, the stars fall, the world is on fire, and land sinks under the ocean. But the interesting thing about this highly pessimistic uh, prophecy, and, you know, from my point of view, it is showing the consequences of systems of domination and even of capitalism that run untrammeled. Uh, Things fall apart. Things will fall apart if the order of nature is not respected. But what's interesting is that through all of this destruction, there's nothing said about the fate of the goddesses. And they, the poem just says, well, Frigg is sorrowing over the loss of her sons and her, her loved ones. But we do have a one comment from Snorri who says, Freya alone remained of the gods. And he also, the Vulvaspa actually ends on a hopeful note because she talks about regeneration. I see green again with growing things. The earth arise from out the sea. Fell torrents flow. Overflies them the eagle on horror highlands which hunts for fish. You know? And and so in other texts, uh, the, they have a similar account where the wolf Benwer will swallow the sun, but before that happens, the sun, who is a goddess, bears a daughter. And so it says, on her mother's path will the maiden fare after the fall of the Aesir at Ragnarok. And a pair of humans also survive. So there's complicity in this prophecy, which is really important, because she's describing the outcome of the war mentality, the domination cultures, mm-hmm. as being destruction. But she's asserting an even more profound principle which is that of regeneration, because the na- the natural world, or even the realm of the giantesses, the giants and the giantesses, the primordial yes. powers of nature, haven't gone anywhere. And this this little patriarchal court of the Iser is not all there is, because underlying this, there is the natural law and the principle of life and even the cyclicity of life turning to death and then coming back up alive again, you know. And so that is what the Voodoo Spa and some of these other texts point to for us. And it's really meaningful for us now, given all that we're facing. Yes. We're really sitting at the brink. Yes. You know, we're trembling at the brink. <laughs> exactly, with, with trembling at the, the brink. threat to life itself and the sixth mass extinction and the destruction of the waters and the forests and all that. And so, you know, it's interesting because this is not the only uh, Indo-European society that had prophecies like this. And various scholars have compared the Vulvaspa prophecy of destruction with that that's found in Greek texts and also what the Bao prophecies at the end, I think it's at the end of the Second Battle of Moitura, one of the classic Irish texts, 
where there's this, again, turning against the natural order and this conflict even amongst kin and, you know, sons turning against fathers and all of these things. And so there's a pessimism to me that really originates in patriarchy itself. Yeah. You know, that you're yeah. going against the natural order That's and there will right. be consequences for that later, if not sooner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Max, we, we need to bring this uh, conversation around. So it occurred to me that uh, after these nine chapters, what I'd like to do is reconvene with you if you're willing, very soon, so that you can tell us how the book is doing, how your research is doing, what clues you are uncovering with your uh, trips to um, to Europe, and sort of talk... I'd love to do that, sure. Good. Yeah, and, and you know, just like some of the current directions of research, I mean, exactly. I have on volume two in this series, The Secret History of the Witches. That's which right. This is the first one to be published. And it's about the Hellenic world. And I, ha- I just really, be- for, for reasons of survival, I, w- I was forced to uh, interrupt the, the completion of this book, which I yes. had hoped had, would have been out last fall. Oh, I see. You know, a year ago. Yes. But... It, it wasn't possible, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to get back to work on this after, okay. um, you know, the interruption of things we don't go, need to go into. Yes. But, um, you know, in a way, that, I mean, certainly we can talk about that uh, as one of the directions of research, and there's a lot of other things that I'm, I'm pursuing, like right now. Well, we'll talk about that in the yes. session. I, I mean, I things think... about prophetic women, for example, that I think everybody will be interested in outside of the strictly European context of, of the, the secret history of the witch, witches. And, and we can do this, if you're willing, very soon, yeah, your sure. time we'll, we'll, as well. We'll but let's do that soon. I think it would be really good to hear uh, about your, um, your path and trajectory. Okay, and I'm up for that. I want to tell you, Max, how grateful I am for you walking us through these nine chapters and giving us such a richness of uh, her story. Well, thank you for hosting it. I thought it was a great opportunity to kind of try to summarize the essence of the book. I hope that it will spur people who are interested in these subjects to actually get the book and look at it. And, and you can get it from Valletta Press, uh, which is my press, right. rather than Amazon. That's always better. Sure. <laughs> I make ten times more on it. Yeah, of course. Way. But uh, supports my work. But um, it's, uh, you know, because really what the book is intended to be is a source book for people who don't read sources in all these languages or who don't have the patience to go through the scholarly literature. You know, I wanted, I wanted this information, which is why I wrote this. I want to understand these historical processes that have led us down this path, you know, and to do ancestral recovery work from, uh, for those of us who are of European descent, we need to have some other place to stand than Christianity or the Roman Empire or these various scripts of domination that have been so deeply embedded in Western Civ. So, you know, it is a decolonizing uh path Manual. that we're on yes. to really understand better Perfect. not only the the process we've all been through but what the alternatives are you know what yeah. could we have um, what did we have you know what did it look like and you know how do we reconfigure ourselves now to that's get back right. on the right path that's right that's right yes I'm with you so Max uh, goodbye for now and um Thank you so much, and we'll be together soon again. Okay, great, Joanna. Great talking to you.